please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be the first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak uh, speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Do you know that the word salary comes from the word salt? Salt was so valuable in ancient times that salaries were often paid with salt. Roman soldiers would receive a salary that would be equivalent to the salt they would need to buy. Before refrigeration, salt was the only preservative that they had. One writer summarizes its various uses. Salt preserves and fends off decay. Salt heals and soothes. It has medicinal value. Salt brings flavor and enhances in all the other flavors in a food. Our bodies need salt to function properly. Jesus declared to his followers, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, under people's feet. We 
as believers in Christ, are the salt of the earth. How savory are we? Let's pray. Our Father, this is your word. Weave it through my life this morning. Weave it through each of our lives. Meet us precisely where we are so that you could guide us as the good shepherd. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So at this point in Mark's Gospels, the disciples are far from being savory salt. They're not models to be followed. They're examples to be eschewed. Yet Jesus is about to pass God's baton to them. They're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus will be crucified. All that he will accomplish through his death and resurrection, all of his teaching are going to be left in the hands of the disciples. And it will either live, die, or be corrupted through them. If they continue on their current path, they won't lay a foundation of the church of Christ to the glory of God. They will lay a foundation of church to the self, to their personal glory. There's little time for the disciples to turn around and become savory. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' pathway for them and for us to become savory salt by making the gospel central, developing a servant heart, and examining ourselves. Mark 8, 30-32 opens a They went out from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will rise. But they they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. So our passage opens with Jesus and his disciples. They're traveling through Galilee towards Jerusalem. And they take a route that avoids the cities and avoids all the crowds because this time with the disciples is so critical. The teaching they receive will be foundational for their lives. And although they're traveling for hours, Mark only mentions one thing that's taught that Christ will die and rise. Jesus is centering them on the gospel. It's the essence of his training during this journey. So we can imagine Jesus drilling deeply down into the significance and the importance of the events that are about to to take place. There's many more lessons that Jesus is going to teach, especially in the upper room just before he's arrested. But the gospel is the center from which everything else flows. The gospel must always be the center of our lives. Without him, without his death, we are still lost dead in our trespasses and sin, far from God, fearfully expecting 
God's eternal judgment. His resurrection is just as critical. It confirms his identity as the divine son of God. It validates his teaching. And it's the fulfillment of the promise of eternal life for us. For we will rise like him. And his resurrection shows that God will fulfill his promise to give us the Holy Spirit and to empower us to live as we should. Jesus' sacrifice also provides a model. A model of humility and sacrificial servanthood that the disciples must imitate. But instead of probing the depths and the implication of the gospel, the disciples are clueless. They don't understand, and yet they don't ask one single question about Jesus' teaching. It says, because they were afraid. So what were they afraid of? Well, they may have been afraid of asking questions because it would expose their ignorance. And after all, you've got to protect your self-image. They may have been fearful of being rebuked as Peter was. Because if, like Peter, they, they can't grasp what Jesus is teaching, it doesn't fit what the Messiah is supposed to be, they might have challenged Jesus like Peter. So they keep their mouth shut. Or it may be that they wanted to avoid facing what Jesus was just talking about, that he would be delivered over and killed. Who wants to talk about that? But any one of these reasons displays a self-centeredness that's about to be highlighted. The depth of their self-absorption is revealed in their conversations as they approached Capernaum. Read verses 33, 34. And he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent. For on the way, they argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, we'd expect the disciples, after hearing this news, that they'd be distressed over Jesus' prediction of his death. Minimally, we would expect that they would be discussing it among themselves, but no, they're callously arguing about who is the greatest among them. Who's, who stands on the top rung of the ladder? We can imagine Peter, John, and James claiming, well, we're on the top rung. After all, Jesus invited just the three of us up the mountain with him. And we can't tell you what happened there. And you, get, you could immediately hear one of the other disciples say, Peter, you think you're on the top rung? Didn't Jesus just rebuke you a little while ago? I think you're on the bottom. And so the, the argument would go on and on and out. Who is the greatest? So they get to Capernaum and Jesus asks, so what are you talking about? <laughs> no, they're not going to tell. So they, they should have just stopped, looked at themselves, and admitted their egocentrality. Instead, they just keep silent. 
too embarrassed to admit what's going on inside of them and inside of them. What a contrast between Jesus' teaching about this, his selflessness and his death for us and their selfishness. It's so striking. So this leads to a lesson about true greatness. Developing a servant's heart. Verses 35 through 37. And he sat down and he, he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And then taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me doesn't receive me. They receive him who sent me. See, greatness isn't about getting to the top rung of the ladder. It isn't about being first. It comes with the willingness to be last. Greatness isn't conferred through the applause of the influential. It's earned through servanthood to the least. We must be not, I'm number one. We must be last and servant of all. And so Jesus drives home the point with a visual illustration. He draws one of the, the last, a child, to himself. You know, and at that time, Children virtually had no status, no significance until they'd become useful. After all, children can't pay us for our service. They can't advance our careers. They don't reciprocate our sacrifices. They don't make life less stressful. They don't think about the fact of, that we pour ourselves out for them. But all of this doesn't matter to Jesus nor should it matter to us. Christ calls us to service that doesn't look for what we're going to get in return. It isn't about giving a soda bottle to someone thinking we're serving them, but wanting the bottle back so we can get our five cents back. We don't look for a return. So Jesus puts his arms around the child to picture the loving, nurturing, servant relationship that we're to have with the least among us, we're to have with everyone. But his message isn't, don't look, uh, look at the cute kids running around the sanctuary. Uh, don't you just love them? Wouldn't you just do anything for them? I'll, I'll change their diapers. No. It's not, it's not about their cuteness. Jesus is saying, there are those who can give you nothing in return. Serve them wholeheartedly. Why? Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and receives the one who sent me. See, it's not about the child. It's about God. We shouldn't define people in their relationship to us. We should define people in their relationship to God.
We're to see them through Christ's eyes. Serve them in Christ's name, not, not through our eyes and in our name. See, then, then we're not just receiving a little one. We're receiving Christ. And we're receiving the Father. John Piper summarizes the intent of Jesus' teaching. When I call you to be the servant of all, including children, I'm not calling you to some heroic self-sacrifice. I'm calling you to stop chasing the bubbles of man's praise and start pursuing God. Stop trying to receive praise in the service of men and start receiving God in the service of children. John then unwittingly discloses that he's oblivious to Jesus' message. Jesus barely finishes teaching that we should receive people in his name and John starts boasting about how the disciples are excluding someone who's using Jesus' name to perform miracles. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Instead of celebrating the defeat of a demon, which the disciples recently couldn't do, the disciples tried to stop him because he wasn't in their exclusive club. His boast was immediately countered by Jesus in verses 39 and 40. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus welcomes the man that they're excluding. The man performs a miracle in Jesus' name. That implies that he either has a relationship with the kingdom of God or he's very, very close to it. God would not have done a mighty work through him in Jesus' name unless God's finger was on that man. He's not against Jesus. He's using Jesus' name. This work should not be stopped. See, the, while the disciples draw an airtight circle around themselves, Jesus expands that circle. He expands the word us. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Anyone who serves the disciples because they belong to Christ are included since they are in relationship to the kingdom. They wouldn't be serving them because of the disciples' service for Christ unless they're entering the kingdom. Tribalism has no place in the body of Christ. A major stumbling block for those who do not yet believe in Christ and for many who are Christians is seeing how the church that's supposed to be filled with love and grace is so divided. The church that's supposed to be so humble is in competition with one another to be the greatest. To get people to come to our church. 
when Christ Church has opened its arms widely beyond Westgate. I remember being in a city and listening to the radio and there was an ad from a church that said, are you tired of the worship in your church? Well, come to ours because we've got the greatest worship. No single church is the body of Christ. It is broad. The evangelist and preacher George Whitfield reflected the relationship we should have within the body of Christ. Whitfield was a diehard Calvinist. John Wesley was a committed Arminian. These are two theologies that, that often clash. They shared the leadership of the Methodist movement at the beginning. But Whitfield stepped aside because the movement was in danger of being divided. His followers urged him to step back into leadership. They warned him that his name would be forgotten if he didn't. He replied, my name? Let the name of Whitfield perish if only the name of Christ is glorified. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. That's not the attitude of the disciples. They're on the verge of casting, causing this little one to stumble. To walk away from Christ. And so this leads to Jesus' warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In John 17... Jesus prays for the unity of believers that the world would know when they see our unity that God sent Jesus. Our unity is among the highest priorities of the Lord. It's among the greatest proofs of the gospel. Yet the disciples are far from it. Even among themselves, they're arguing. Their egocentrism, their self-aggrandizing behaviors led them to marginalize a man who's serving Christ. And Jesus warns them in stark language, such sins deserve a judgment worse than drowning with a millstone around your neck. Their attitudes and actions lead to the sin of rejecting a little one. And that's worthy of hellfire. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life lame, then with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What Jesus is saying is the remedy for you is self-examination. Consider how your hand, your foot, and your eye may cause 
you to sin in such a way that you're causing the little ones to walk away from the faith. And so to drive home the seriousness of this sin, Jesus uses a hyperbole. These are not to be taken literally. Jesus isn't commanding people, cut off your hand. Cutting off your hand wouldn't keep anyone from sinning. And plus, no one gets to heaven by being sinless. We're all sinners. We, we get there through the grace of God in the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross. Plucking out an eye won't stop us from sinning. So these words are exaggerations to emphasize the horrendous nature of this sin, to wake them up to what they're doing. The reference to hell is not hyperbole. It's spoken of as an eternal judgment several times in Scripture. Here the word Gehenna is used, the garbage dump, a valley where refuse was burned and corpses were disposed, a place where the fire always rages. It pictures the reality of eternal judgment. The disciples are not in danger of that. Shortly, Jesus is going to say, you are all clean with the exception of the one who's going to betray me. But Jesus is making them aware of how atrocious their sin is by reminding them of the penalty that it deserves. We could apply this to all of our sins, but the context here directs us to address the specific sins of how the hand, foot, and eye might cause a little one who believes to sin to walk away from the faith. The hand may refer to them pushing people away rather than serving them. The foot may refer to walking a path of selfishness rather than sacrifice. The reference to the eye reminds us of Jesus' words of first take the log out of your own eye before you ever judge anyone else. They're not doing that. Disciples are guilty, guilty, guilty. Then our passage circles back to the original dispute, the discord between the disciples as they're arguing about their superiority over one another. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. I spent hours on this. <laughs> One thing we see is that they're salted with fire. In the context, that fire is the fire of hell, the fire of judgment that their sins deserve. So when this shocking news hits home, the disciples would examine themselves, repent, change, and become savory salt. Facing the reality of hell would salt all of us. If a person is without Christ, they need to face the reality of hell. 
It's real. And when they do, they will realize what awaits them because of the sin in their life, their rebellion against God. They'll see that they can't save themselves. They'll look for a Savior. And they'll hear our words. That Savior is here in Jesus Christ. And they will be salted. Believers in Christ will be salted with that fire too. We may not be facing that judgment because of our faith in Christ. But we need to remember that judgment. We need to remember what we deserve. And then we know that Jesus Christ went through that hell to pay for our sins. Then we will begin to appreciate the cross in greater ways. Then we will begin to just begin to understand the magnitude of Christ's love for us. And when we love, when, when he loves us, then we love. When he first loves us, then we love God more. Then we love one another more. Then we love the lost more. We are all salted with this fire. And so Jesus says, you've got that salt in you, disciples. So be at peace with one another. And when they are, they will begin to salt the world with Christ. Just as Christ prays in John 17, and they may all be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus calls us to humility and service. His admonition to get over ourselves and to serve everyone flows from the person of Christ himself. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not accord did not regard equality with God to, as something to be clung to, to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Those words describe the life of one who was not great in the world's eyes during his days. But he was great in God's eyes. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel will not make us popular in our world but it will transform us to become the savory salt of Christ's likeness that the little ones in our world badly needs. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love that sent your Son.
to go through hell so that we don't have to. To be excluded so that we could be included. To be a servant so we would have the capability to serve all. He humbled himself so we could be exalted. Lord, may those truths transform our lives so that we do become that savory salt you've called us to be. Amen.